getting to meet both Bill and Jamie, which are relatively new for me, I, uh, I've come to appreciate, appreciate both of them. And uh, uh, I'm still getting to know Jamie. The thing that with both these guys that I've, I appreciate is we can sit and have a discussion and not, not, be, um, not be on the same page. But that doesn't mean you shut the book. I, I, I enjoy when I can actually talk to somebody that just talks with me instead of accusing me <laughs> and, and, shut, and shutting the book. It's like, I don't know. You asked me a question. I tried to give you an answer, and that didn't, wasn't sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, uh, this time I got to spend more time with Jamie. We have a, lots of really good discussion not all of it theological, some of it just very personal, just letting me into his world, his family, things he's gone through, and me letting him into my world and my family and things I've gone through. And um, The thing I, I um, as far as a connection to this church that I, um, I find very valuable is Jamie, for one, as somebody that oversees a large network of churches, is very... Um, well-versed in church conflict because he spends most of his time dealing with it within the network. So I just appreciate somebody that you can pull from that has been there, that has worked through it, that has the experience, that, and that sometimes can look at you and go, yeah, you, you'll be all right. This, you'll come through this one. You know, and he, uh, the other thing I find valuable is like I find valuable with Harold is here's somebody who uh, their own sphere is really large. So you get a much broader picture of what's going on on the planet than what you're going to get if you talk to me. So it gives me a resource to pull from myself because they're seeing what's happening in other countries. They're seeing what the kingdom is, where it's advancing, what's going on. We sometimes get so pulled into, well, Greenwood, Delaware is the world. <laughs> yeah. And you know, every now and then somebody needs to push the eject button and <laughs> set our butt someplace else on another part of the planet where you're going, huh, this isn't Kansas, is it? <laughs> so it's good. I so I, I did uh, I did enjoy um, both morning and evening. It was fun to do a Sunday evening service. I know that that throws another, another event into our week, but that, that was fun. Um, and, you know, an evening service generally like that is always going to be different than what we do on Sunday morning. So, anyway, uh, thank you. I'm glad for, you know, we had a good turnout, and that was good, and uh, appreciate that. So I want to jump back into where I was at, I don't even know, weeks ago. But actually, in looking at my notes for today, coming up on Christmas, kind of like with Jim's song, I think this is actually dovetails into Christmas pretty good, what, what I'm going to talk about today. But I want to first go back um, and just refresh us a little bit. I was, when we left off, I was in John chapter 8, and there were several discourses that were happening uh, John chapter 8, verses 38 through 44, Jesus gets into this whole discussion with uh, the Jews that were there, and they're claiming that Abraham's our father. And he said, if Abraham was your father, you would recognize me. And they, they have a back and forth. And finally, they get fed up with him, and they're like, well, at least we're not illegitimate. And so... They throw that in. They throw that piece out on the table, um, and uh, Jesus then ups the ante and he starts to introduce something into the conversation that he has not introduced into the gospel thus far. And that was in verse forty-four when he said, "You are of your off. You are the offspring of your father, the devil. You serve your father very well, passionately carrying out his desires." 
He's a murderer right from the start, and he never stood with the one who is the true prince. For he's full of nothing but lies. Lying is his native tongue. He is the master of deception and father of lies. And I, I just kind of left something for you to think about at the end of that, that teaching that day, which is I just find this interesting where in 44, he's, Jesus says, he, the devil, never stood with the one who is the true prince. And just how does that fit into some, some of our theology? And then we went down to 846, um, and Jesus finally looks at him and says, can you name one sin that I've committed? Then if I'm telling you only the truth, why don't you believe me? And then in John 9, 39, and Jesus said, I come to judge those, I have come to judge those who think they see and make them blind. And for those who are blind, I come to make them see. And that was where we kind of left off. But what Jesus enter, brings into the discussion, you're of your father, the devil. And, um, you know, if we, if, if we grew up with Dante's Inferno being the scripture that we used to establish our view of the devil, of hell, of the various things, um, the, Jesus starts to take us in a direction, and John, through his whole narrative, is taking us in a direction where he starts to introduce this whole concept of the adversary. Um, and of course, when I said Dante's Inferno is the scripture, I was being facetious. It's, it's not scripture. It's, it's a, it is a fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so John's taken us through, why has Jesus come to, your, come to the earth? What's the importance of him being the son of man? The word became flesh. The word dwelled among us. Why was that important? Well, it was important because God's coming and identifying with our humanity at the fullest level of our humanity. Coming as we come, growing as we grow, and living as we live, he, God is coming, it's the word becoming flesh. And the other piece that, starts to, that we start to see in this narrative as John bring, brings it about is we now move from Jesus going from place to place, doing this miracle, that miracle, another miracle. We, we see all the power things that Jesus is doing. And now all of a sudden, there's this confrontation that comes, and Jesus now is starting to become the villain of the story. And from the, for the Jews, they have now decided that they're, even though they accuse him of being, of, of having a demon, of being, you know, possessed by the devil, they themselves are actually the ones that are the devil. They are the accuser. And their accusations are either distorted or, or false altogether. And so that's where we start to see this. There's this, there's this, um, when we talk about the spirit of this world and we talk about the spirit of God, the difference between the two is the spirit of God is always going to move in truth. The spirit of the world is always going to move in a lie or at least a distortion of truth. And that's the conflict. And now all of a sudden we're watching this start to happen. Jesus is now the one that's the center stage of the lie. One, the distorted thing, you're illegitimate. So we disqualify you right off the bat because of that. Secondly, then to do the things you're doing, then it's, you only do that because you have a demon. You do it by the power of Beelzebub. So now they start to bring in the lie. And so Jesus is constantly saying, this is the truth. When he says, okay, what sin did I do? Well, they didn't answer the question because one, he did, hadn't done any. So then they turn the, turn the tables again and bring the lie back in and bring the accusation back in. At this point, he's now becoming the villain of the story 
that ultimately is going to end at the cross. And everything that now starts happening, we're, we're six days from the crucifixion at this point. And from this point on, in a few minutes, we'll look at a, a, the verse we're going to look at, is his last public statement to a group of people on the fifth day before he's going to be crucified. So at this point, the narrative is shifted. In the beginning, there was a level of tolerance, and then it went to intolerance, and then it went to, you're the villain, you need to die. And John's walking us through the progression on the way to the cross. And why is that important? Well, it's important from the standpoint we all have been in places where the lie has been put on us. Our heart cries for justice when most of us experience injustice. And in the world system, even when we move to try to find justice, justice is broken. We still live in systems where ultimately I'm, I'm appealing for justice and I finally get my day in court. And one of the things that I often heard when I was in court a lot, when I worked for the state, is there were judges that we wanted to go before and there were judges that we never wanted to go before. Now, in our case, what we were doing, it wasn't criminal. It was, it was uh, condemnation things. So we had judges that really didn't like the highway department. And you, if you looked at the track record of how many times we won in their court, it was obvious. And the judge oftentimes made no bones about that. We had other judges that, that you know, from our perspective, were more favorable, but not favorable just because we won, but seemed to actually follow the law that we were litigating before the bench. They actually followed that instead of following more their opinion. In our country, we say we have one of the best justice systems in the world, and possibly we're, we might, or I would say we're still at the top. But that's not justice for all, even, so we, even though we say it in our Constitution. Yeah. There's a lot of things that come into play. And there's a lot of people that experience injustice when they're appealing for justice. Jesus steps into our humanity and takes that on and becomes the villain, suffering the injustice of the accusation, the, un the injustice of what we would call a kangaroo court. You know, we'll talk about that later. But just, you know, he was he was convicted and I let me back up I, I totally last week the one the one one of the bombs that Jamie dropped was when he talked about why they all had swords anybody remember that piece because Jesus was not going to be crucified as a martyr he was going to be crucified as a criminal and he counted heads and made sure they had enough swords to break the law, the Roman law. So from Pilate's perspective, he was a criminal. That was brand new to me. I did, I, I did go check that out. That is legit. Jamie didn't make that up on the spot. It's legit. But I'm just like, oh my goodness. That, like, that was like one of those little nuggets. I'm like, dang. I'm like 67 years old. Nobody ever told me that. I've been all these years trying to figure out why Peter had a sword. Thanks, Jamie. He's <laughs> kind of set my head right. It was like that. That. So. So Jesus. Now we're moving into this place where he starts to to bring forth the adversary, and I mean. Uh, let me just back up to a previous note for a minute. Make sure I get it right. Uh, 
So the word, the word Satan, and depending on what translation you're using, the word Satan in the Hebrew is ha-Satan, which just means the accuser. So it's not, it's not specific to a entity. It's specific to any entity that becomes an accuser. What's that song we used to sing? Be careful, little tongue, what you say. So, uh, so in John twelve twenty seven. So Jesus, through these verses I just read, he's at, the accusations are now leading to the conviction, painting Jesus as the story's villain. Uh, they're accusing Satan of being ha Satan, uh, and they're showing that they're actually the accuser's characteristics. They're the ones that are actually the Satan in the story. Um, and then we come to this amazing group of verses, John 12, starting with verse 27. Jesus speaking, Even though I am torn within, my soul is in turmoil. I will, not, I will not ask the Father to rescue me from this hour of trial, for I have come to fulfill my purpose, to offer myself to God. So, Father, bring glory to your name. Then suddenly a booming voice was heard from the sky. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And the audible voice of God startled the crowd standing nearby. Some thought it was only thunder. Yet others said, an angel just spoke to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice you heard was not for my benefit, but for yours, to help you believe. From this moment on, everything in this world is about to change, for the ruler of this dark world will be overthrown. And I will do this when I am lifted, lifted up off the ground, and when I draw the hearts of people to gather them to me. I mean, this is, this is such an amazing thing. Because we, you know, we, many of us preachers tell the story of Jesus in the garden and, you know, the moment of temptation and God, God you know, can you take this cup from me? But here, Jesus says very clearly, I'm taking the cup. This cup is the very reason I came. So, John starts showing us that, you know, it isn't just about human injustice or creation being set right, even though both of those are a part of that. John leads us into seeing the dark power, the power without a real name, because it's the power of anti-creation. It's the world's ruler. The Jews used the term prince of this world to mean the angel of death. That was their concept of the prince of the world. Um, in Western evangelical, we've kind of made that into something else. But from a Jewish standpoint, it was um, the angel of death. And humans have worshipped idols and given themselves to idolatry. And human idolatry from the first lie in the garden has escalated to the flood and then finally to Golgotha. I, you know, when we talk about lies and accusations, if we pin it to and try to make it into this, this being that's got a tail with a point on the end and is red and has horns and prances around half man, half animal, when the fact is, it's the lie. It's the lie that started when God looked at Adam and Eve and said, who told you you were naked? That question is still resounding through humanity. And all of us are, are, have to deal with it. All of us get confronted with it. All of us have to, what, what do we do when the lie or the line of shame that ran from the garden into our very present lies, what do we do when that lie is there? How do we handle it? How do I get free from it? How do I not get ensnared by it again and again and again? 
What do I do with the thoughts that come in the evening or in the day that accuse me of being me? And then try to attach shame to that and then tell me that I'm less than what I have been created to be. And then I believe it. And when I believe it, I start to act upon it. I start to live like it. And I start to attract to myself things that agree with that lie. Or do I come to this place where in Christ I actually get to hear the truth and believe the truth and come into the truth and realize that, no, I've, I've been created. I've been, the God, God in, in creating me created me for purpose. He created me to be connected to him. He created me to be a temple where he dwells in me and where I dwell in him. And that's every person on the planet has been called to that and given that invitation. But the lie comes in. So we have this accumulation of idolatry that has been taking place from the beginning all the way to this day, this, this moment where Jesus, being painted as the villain, has finally said, today, it ends. That power is broken. That lie is broken. It doesn't mean its voice won't still be heard but its power is broken, and it's broken only to what that which I give it power. You know, so many of us, we, probably all of us in this room at some point, we will deal with things that we deal with in secret, thinking that in secret, I can just get this out of my life. When in fact, it, a lie needs to be exposed. The power of the lie is the secret that the lie lives in. How many of us have discovered that when I actually told the truth, something changed, something changed in my heart, something changed in my circumstances, something began to change in my life just by telling the truth. It's incredible. And, I, and I'm telling you this as a, as a kid growing up, I was a habitual liar. In my 20s, I got saved. I lied a little less. In my 30s, I was still saved. I lied even less. I think it was in my mid-40s when it finally dawned on me. Keeping track of a lie is so much work. If I just tell the truth, I don't even have to remember it because it's the truth. And if it's the truth, if I said it this way this time, I don't have to make sure, how did I tell that story last time? Was that person in that story or not? I forget. Oh, darn. <laughs> if I just tell the truth, the story is the same because it's the truth. And shame has no place to accumulate in the truth. The truth sets you free. But in our idolatry, we build these systems where you know, we, we are creating gods that work for us and gods that we work for. And those gods do not bring us into our fullness of who we're supposed to be because they're figments that we've created. I oh, mean, I heard this yesterday. It was such a good quote. What was it? Oh, I can't remember exactly how he said it. The guy was a, uh, a therapist. But the, the gist of what he said was, well, they were talking about people that, dealing, that are dealing with addictions. And that if, you, if you're, and in this particular case, they were talking about alcoholism. And he was saying, if what you focus on is the alcoholism and not being an alcoholic, you're not going to get there. Because that's not the problem. That's the symptom. The problem is what happened at some point that your life and heart are still holding on to 
that alcohol is the medication for, right? And that, that, you know, we all know that. We talk about that all the time. But still, it's this place where, um, so he, his point was that for, if I don't deal with the root, then my heart will continually keep me reliving the event and then using whatever form I've come up with to fix, or not to fix, but to medicate the event. And that until that event is brought into the light, then um, I, I don't, I'm not going to get better. I think for some of us, the harder part is, if we're, if we're honest in this thing, which remember, honesty is better, but if we're honest in this thing, that there's certain things I don't know why. I don't know why. So what do we do with that? That's the places that we go, whether it's through SOZO or it's just through encounters or it's through counseling. There's a myriad of ways that we're going to handle this. Uh, but that's the place where we go, Lord, help me see the things about me that I can't see. And then give it time. I mean, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the type, if I'm going to pray that prayer, can we get this wrapped up by 1030? Because okay. I got a busy day. I'm a mess right now. But 1030 would work. Just tell me where I'm screwed up. And I'll get through that. I can have that probably knocked out by 11. And then I can get on with life. And, and God's like, no. No, the, the way I do things is relational. I appreciate the fact you're having the conversation. I appreciate the fact that you've asked the question. I do have an answer. But in those places where Jesus said, I have more to say to you, but you can't take it. Yeah. <laughs> There's those places where we ask the right question, and God's like, yeah, I got stuff to say to you, but you can't take it. Or as was it uh, Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> because somehow in my relationship with God, I have to be, I, I'm growing, I'm maturing, and I'm not able to hold all the truth that God has to tell me about me. I can't handle it yet. But as I grow, I can handle more, and I can handle more, and I can handle more. You know? So, again, it's just this place where we're talking about the prince of this world, the lie that we, we all live. I, guess, I think I said the last time I was up, nobody on the planet knows what it's like to live outside of the realm of grace. Grace is functioning on the planet right now, whether you're a believer or not. Because God's presence is covering the whole earth. And where his presence is, his grace is. I may not see it. I may not appreciate it. I may not want it. I may cuss it. But it's still there, and it's still impacting me. And it's a benefit to me whether I can see it or not. Right? So in the same way, the, the, the spirit of this world, we all don't know what it's like to live outside of the realm of the lie. It's there. It permeates. It's, it's everywhere we look. If I turn on the radio, it's there. If I turn on the TV, it's definitely there. Um, you know, if I pick up print, if I talk to somebody, we all don't know what it's like to live outside of a place where I'm totally free from having to deal with the lie. As a believer, we now have Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit's job is, in the course of something, to, look, to put his arm around us and go, that right there, you need to leave that alone. And then we have to choose. We can go, no, I think I can handle it. All right. I think it'd be better for you. You just leave it alone. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. And then next week, how in the world did I get in a mess like that? Holy Spirit's going, well, 
I made a suggestion last week, but just didn't seem to think I knew what I was talking about. So you get judged by your words. If you want it, you get it. So we live in this where the prince of this world is the culmination of a collective idolatry that even, took, even captivated the Jews, the ones given the role of imaging the true Yahweh. The dark force, the accuser, the Satan, the shadowy one who brings death itself stands behind injustice and the wickedness in the world. So in this story that's unfolding, this story of judgment, the dark power will be identified and dealt with, but it at the moment, it has twisted the storyline, making Jesus into the villain and crucifying him. So much so that in the courtyard, they all start yelling, crucify him, crucify him. These were the same ones that had, some of them were the same ones that had said, Hosanna to the king. So one day he's the king, a couple days later, crucify him. It's the way the system works. And I, I, I'm absolutely convinced at this point that in this particular time in human history, at least in the United States, it's not, it's not globally, the spirit of this world is global, but I think the United States, we, we are turning this into an actual, absolute art form of self-destruction. Yeah. <laughs> if we're going to destroy each other, we're going to do it in American fashion with Yankee know-how. It's amazing to me. Just, just watch words that get used. And it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. It's a people thing. So Jesus tells it that this moment of distortion will ultimately lead to the victor, to the victory by the creator over the dark force. He will take upon himself the judgment of God against evil. So in John 14, 30 and 31, I won't speak to you much longer for the ruler of this dark world is coming, but he has no power over me for he has nothing to use against me. That is the benefit of truth. If you live in truth, the only thing they can use against you is a lie. They have nothing they can use because you've lived in truth. I'm doing exactly what the Father destined me to accomplish so that the world will discover how much I love my Father. Now, come with me. So at one level, you could say verse 30 when he's talking about you know, the, the ruler of this world, it's Pilate, it's, it's the, uh, the, the Pharisees that are, you know, the religious leaders that are building the case against him. But it's more than that. It's the system itself. This isn't against one. It's the whole system. Jesus is about to bring the system down. Jesus' intention is to save the world. And he's passing judgment on the one that came to destroy it. John 12, 47 and 50, 47 to 50. If you hear my words and you refuse to follow them, I will not judge you. For I have not come to judge you, but to save you. If you reject and refuse to follow my words, you already have judgment. The message of truth I have given you will rise up to judge you in the day of judgment. For I am not speaking as someone who is self-appointed. I speak by the authority of the Father himself who sent me and who instructed me what to say. And I know that the Father's commands result in eternal life. That's why I speak the very word I've heard him speak. So the situation that I'm faced with is, do I actually see? Do I see? Do I act as though I see? Can you tell by watching me that I see? 
Those claiming to see, they end up playing the role of the, of the accuser. You know, the, the religious leaders, they're all claiming to, to see. They're claiming they've got it all together, and Jesus is the one that's demon-possessed. Jesus is the one that's illegitimate. Jesus is the one that needs to die to, for the salvation of the nation. He's the one when, in fact, they are the Hasitan. They are the accuser. And they've built a whole system in their accusation. And they carry it out all the way to the end. So the one who does see Jesus is called demon-possessed. The deceiver Moses warned about in Deuteronomy. Leading a people astray, as it says in John 7, 12. We begin to see how human justice and Yahweh's justice do not look the same and aren't manifest the same. Human justice involves punishment and it's often focused on the individual. You know, I need, I need justice. I want justice. And in order for me to feel like I've got justice, somebody needs to be, be punished. Somebody needs to pay a price. Uh, whereas in Yahweh's justice, it involves cleansing, removal of sin, and reconciliation. It's not punishment. It's reconciliation. It's not punishment. It's cleansing. You know, even in, in, in Corinthians where Paul speaks about the, all of our works will be tried by fire. You know, he's speaking to the church, speaking about our works, speaking about them being tried by fire. That's not eternal. It's a purifying. Why do I go through the fire? It purifies. So the dross is left is gone, and what's left is the pure metal. The fire is not my enemy. It's in a sense, it's my rescuer because God is the fire. He is the fire that comes. He is the one. So all my works are going to be tried. All your works are going to be tried. But that's not to, that we live in fear that somehow, oh my goodness. I can't even sleep at night because, I don't know, I might only live 10 more years and then it's the fire. One, the fire is active now. And two, where, where the fire is, God is. He's not away. Good grief. You throw the, the Jewish boys in the, in the furnace. Yeah. He was there. God's ability to cleanse, yes, the blood dealt with sin. The cleansing deals with my response to that. What do I do with the freedom I've been given? How do I live? Do I still, do I just hold on to unforgiveness because I, I need that sense of justice? I'm just going to hold on and hold on, or do I forgive? Do I practice reconciliation or do I practice something else? Yahweh's justice is based on restoring all of creation so that all the nations will come and worship. Re Revelation 21, we'll close with this. Yeah, even on time. Revelation 21. <laughs> Might have a few more verses. Only kidding. Um, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. And the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. That's amazing. The lamp is the Lamb. By its light. By what light? The light of the, of the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And let me jump because I didn't put the full verse there. 
uh, when you try to find it, you can't find it. Now here it is. Revelation 22.7. So Jesus, well, we'll jump, we'll start with 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and anyone who loves and practices falsehood. 22.16, I, Jesus, has sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. This picture that, that John is painting here is the new Jerusalem, the city. The gates are open. Christ is the light. Outside, the well, first, the nations are bringing their glor the glory and honor into the city. So they're still nations. And then it says, outside the gates, which the gates are open, but outside the gates are this group of people that are still not righteous, are still not cleansed. But this to me is so powerful, and I think it's where we, we are even today in 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come to who? Come to those who are outside. Come in. The invitation is to come. But as long as you're outside, as long as you hold on to your uncleanness, you can't come. But the spirit and the bride is calling out, come, come. And, you know, I, when I was just meditate just on this scripture, it, it filled me with like this sense of a sense of joy, a sense of hope. And, and a, a, I don't know, I don't even know what other word to put to it. It just it shifted something. And I'm like. The whole point of evangelism, the whole point that, that you know, we, we've been, I, I don't know if Jamie brought this up or not, um, but so many of us in Western culture, especially in, in evangelical church, we've divided things between, you know, the us and them. Jamie did say that. You know, there's us and there's them. When the, the word of the scripture is that the word goes out, come. There's no division. There's no us and them. The word is simple. Come. Okay, you're caught in sexual immorality. I'm not here to judge that. I'm here to say, come. Come. And, and the scripture that I read earlier where it says, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you, but these words are going to judge you. He doesn't need to physically judge me. The words that he spoke and are still being spoken and are still resonating, those words are what's going to judge me because my soul is designed to hear those words. We call it a conscience. I don't need an external judge when my soul responds to something and you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Where did that come from? I'm pretty sure it wasn't the flannel graph. <laughs> I think it's the spirit of the Lord that's in us, that's willing us to come and to be reconciled. God is constantly saying, come. Jesus is constantly saying, come. We, the church, constantly be saying, come, come. Wash your robes in the blood. Be cleansed. Come. I don't even know how long... Scripture does not tell us how long this scene goes. My view, it goes until there's nobody left to come. They've all came. You can kind of go with that wherever you want. But I'm just, it doesn't tell us where it ends. But there's this place where God is constantly saying, come. And it changes how I view things. And even kind of with what I... I wrote to the, to the staff at the ER, when I can start to see every individual I meet 
that they are on a journey to being reconciled with God. I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know what it's going to take for you to be reconciled to him. I don't know how long it's going to take. It, you know, I don't, I don't know any of that. And I don't need to know any of that. But what I need to know and what I need to live out with every person I'm looking at and interacting with is you are on a journey into the heart of your creator. And right now, I'm having a connection with you on your journey. And all I'm, be, all I'm being asked to do is say, come, just come. Put away the barriers. Put away, the gates are open. The only barrier is the stuff they're holding on to. The only barrier is the, the, whatever it is that's keeping them. But the gates are open, and the voice from the city is come. And my voice should be come. Yeah. And anytime my, ver my voice is a voice of hindrance instead of a voice of welcoming, I don't know. I think I have to say, Jesus, what do you have to say about that? Now, again, I'm not talking. I mean, there's, there's, there's love has boundaries. You know, there's a lot of things that go into this. I'm just get, trying to paint the bigger picture. Yeah. But, but it doesn't change the big picture. And then I have to come in with each individual situation I'm in, and God, what are you doing? Jesus, in this situation, I only want to do what I see you doing. I only want to say what I hear you saying. I'm, I, I'm well able to do something different. But I want to only do what I see you doing and say what I hear you saying. And probably for me, and this goes back a long way, but probably one of the uh, one of the earliest senses of conviction that I had as a new believer, where the scriptures say, you know, the way you judge is the way you're going to be judged. And I realized then I'm a very cruel judge, and there is no justice in my court. It ain't there. There's self-satisfaction, but not justice. And as a young believer, having that revelation, I didn't know what in the world to do with it, except I just felt bad. <laughs> I've lived the rest of my life trying to clean up the court. Amen. Uh, we haven't even begun to see the full weight of what Jesus did. And listening to some of the, the older hymns, just this week they've been popping up on the radio, I realized some of those hymns, we're actually singing some good theology. We're not practicing it, but we're singing it. We don't put faith to it, but we sang it. About how much he does love, how much he does reconcile, how much he is for the world. And even in as we come into this Christmas season, oh my goodness. You know, the opening statement at his birth was, Joy to the world. You know. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. That was the opening, the opening declaration sung by the angels. And the final words, it is finished. It is finished. And to coin, or not to coin, but to use N.T. Wright's words, and that's the day the revolution began. And it's still going on. And we are winning. I hate to use the word win, because in our culture, winning 
is adversarial. We are being reconciled. And he's reconciling more and more and more. And even at those that we deem hopeless, he is not deemed hopeless. He is reconciling. And he knows where their heart is. He knows how to speak to their heart. He knows how to pull their heart to himself. And if we give any credence to the testimony that uh, Chris DeSantos shared with us some years back when he was here, and even death doesn't stop that. Lord, let your spirit wash and fill our hearts with such a place of humility that we can see our own, our own frailty and also not need to hold on to our own rightness. Jesus, let us just see you and be you. And in those places where we're vilified, may we love in those places where we're persecuted, may we love. Or may we just be the people of the way who know how to love and to do it well. Holy Spirit, work that into us. It doesn't come natural to us. But you've said you're making us and have made us a new creation. And it is natural to that new creation. So help us, Lord. Help us to see. Help us to see us and not be afraid. Amen.